Both uh, Pastor Darren and I have uh, some pretty deep connections with the Stuckey family. Uh, Darren and Mark were uh, comrades in arms in the library at, uh, at the Master's Seminary, and Mark graduated 10 seconds before I did, Stuckey, then Swartz. And uh, we had lots of classes together and enjoyed them. And some of you may not know this, but Mark was ordained here through Grace Bible Church. He is ordained through our church. And we're just so proud for his ministry. Um, they went down as a, as a third-generation missionary to Brazil and started a church from nothing, just prayer and getting to know their neighbors. And now they have people who are saved and coming to the Lord. And not only that, their, their organization they're with, um, Brazil Gospel Fellowship, is uh, planting churches all over Brazil. So uh, please be in prayer for them. And as an extra special treat, uh, the Stuckies will be in Bakersfield in October, and he's going to preach for us here at Grace. And so I'm thankful to get to see, see them in the coming weeks. Well, we've camped for some time at 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. We've been looking at the church's shepherds, and we've been taking quite a bit of time before we even look at the qualifications of an elder and a shepherd because once we arrive at verses 2 through 7 in 1 Timothy 3, the extensive foundation we've laid down will make those qualifications intuitive, make them obvious. My hope is that you always know what an elder ought to be about. And once again, you might ask, what does this have to do with me? And once again, we know that a church that understands eldership, a church that understands shepherding, understands the church. And that's why it's important for you, important for all of us. We have, even in our own town, churches that were once faithful that are beginning to stray because of their leadership. And we see this over and over again. Some of you have come from some of those churches. So leadership is everything in the church when it comes to setting a direction. Now for the last two messages before we get to the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, we're going to look at the relationship between the church members, the sheep, and the shepherds in terms of their duties to one another. Next time, we'll look at the shepherds' duties to the sheep, the membership of the church. Today, though, I'd like to focus on the members' duties to the shepherds, what your duties are. The church of Jesus Christ has been made quite ineffective at times because of the lack of understanding that the membership has about their shepherds. But if we're going to be fair about this, the real reason, the ultimate reason for this lack of understanding is the fact that the shepherds aren't teaching the Bible. They're not teaching what the Bible says, not preaching what the Bible says, and instead using human logic or using personality or using uh, winsomeness to attract a crowd instead of just saying what the Word of God says. And so ultimately, um, the ineffective way that members treat their shepherds comes back to the shepherds. But we do want to understand this dynamic just to give you some perspectives on the challenges of shepherding and on pastoral ministry. A study just in the last year showed this, these, some of these statistics. 80% of pastors believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. 78% of pastors report that their vacations are interrupted with ministry duties or expectations. 24% of pastors' families report struggling with resenting the church for the negative toll on their family. 90% of pastors report that pastoral ministry is completely different than what they thought it would be like before they entered into the ministry. 57% of pastors do not receive a wage that they can live on. 75% of pastors report a significant, personally debilitating crisis in the ministry at least once during their time in the ministry. 80% of pastors and 84% of their wives have felt at some point significant discouragement to the point of considering a change of some sort. 75% of pastors feel that four or more hours every week is spent in needless meetings. 35% of pastors today battle significant depression. 70%, 70% of pastors do not have someone they consider to be a close friend. And one out of every 10 pastors will actually retire as a pastor. The other nine are out of the ministry for one reason or another. Every month in the past year, 
1,500 pastors left the ministry every month. And 1,300 more of them were fired by their churches, the majority of them without cause that was reasonable. I've personally had the opportunity to counsel with a number of pastors who are just flabbergasted at how the church that they cherished and nurtured and poured their lives out for could kick them to the curb or treat them in such a way as to make life unbearable for his family. And yet, despite all of that, the same study showed that nine out of ten pastors believe they're exactly where God would have them to be. That's good. That's a good thing. They're committed to their local church at a high level. So what is this disconnect about? How is it that there's so much turmoil and trouble, and yet there's, uh, in some sense, an optimism as well? What's the disconnect? Why does it seem that the members of the church at times have a surface or a perfunctory or a faked respect for their pastors, and yet when anything gets difficult at any level, the claws and the teeth come out? Why is that? Well, at the core, this still falls back to the shepherds to a large degree. The membership of the church tend to love their shepherds to the degree that they're fed the word of God and have a sense of indebtedness to them. In other words, as you are fed the word, you have a natural sense of of love and affection and even indebtedness. And so a pastor then who's lazy in the word of God or tries to pander more to the lost visitor than to feed the committed sheep might be headed for trouble because he's not feeding the sheep. We might also look at the tendency in our culture to be consumer-driven, that the church is the organization and the members are the customers. And that's about the level of love and commitment that many will allow themselves to be compelled by. And you could translate this, maybe think of it this way, into viewing the shepherds of the church at the same level that you would view the manager of a local store. That you're friendly, but it's not real. And when the store doesn't fill your consumer needs, you simply switch, often for very selfish reasons. Every pastor experiences this, but I'm frankly been flummoxed and baffled by church members who dehumanize their pastors and elders and leave a church even without a thank you. And most often, according to everyone I've talked to, and it's happened to me as well, most often with a, here's why my leaving is really your fault, goodbye. That happens the majority of the time. I talked to a pastor just a couple of weeks ago that had a a member of his church, been there for 10 years, and just left for no reason. Won't answer his texts, won't answer his phone calls, nothing. He's baptized his children. He has prayed with them during illnesses. He was with a, a dying parent in the hospital. And literally, they just disappear without a trace. Now, why is this so terrible? This isn't just terrible on the pastors. We expect this. When when we're in seminary, we're told you're going to get shot at. That's the way it's going to happen. But it's terrible for the church because whatever's terrible for the church is Satan's scheme to derail the gospel. You get a church involved in difficulties with the members and the pastors or the elders and the gospel goes to the wayside, which is exactly what Satan wanted. But on the other hand, if the church membership that collectively acts like a team with their shepherds who sees the bigger picture of an effective church being good for the kingdom of Christ. They understand that a right and a loving relationship with their shepherds is vital to this. Then good things happen and churches become effective. They become healthy. They become wonderful tools for the kingdom. And I have to say this, it is not possible It's not possible for you to be personally effective in the church of Jesus Christ if you're not in right relationship, both in heart and in action, to the shepherds of the church. You can have one or the other, but you can't have both. It's not possible to be personally effective in that situation. Now, I'm not uncomfortable talking about this because this this isn't for my benefit. Grace Bible Church has a long history of loving and appreciating their shepherds, but every individual member... Every one of you is capable of allowing resentment or disagreement to begin to shadow your love, to taint your affection, and all this does is to make you miserable. That's all it does. I have to say that the vast majority of my experience here at Grace has been church members who are loving, appreciative, supportive, eager to be taught, excited about the Lord, excited about His Word. That's what makes ministry a joy. 
I get to see your eager faces every week and hear about your changed lives. But part of that team effort mentality between the sheep and the shepherds and understanding that comes very simply from being taught about the relationship between the sheep and the shepherds. And so to kind of key off of 1 Timothy 3.1 and help us understand that relationship, I'd like to look together with you at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you turn there with me, we'll spend our time there. And I've, I've preached this passage before, but it's warm and it's uh, inviting. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 13. And just so you recall, the church at Thessalonica was a very young church meaning they didn't have any mature believers in the real sense. Paul and Silas were only there a few months before they were run out of town. They had started this new church, and now Paul is concerned about them, and he sends this letter back to them after having heard wonderful reports, and he sends this letter to teach them further. So we're going to talk about the relationship of the sheep and the shepherds. Now, there's three groups of you that I'm speaking to today, and I think all of you fall into one of these three categories. The first group or category... Those of you who are mature in your faith and you'll be edified by this reminder, we can always be edified by that. Just as husbands, we never should grow weary of hearing husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. The second group, maybe you've been in the faith for a while and you're kind of unclear about how the local church is to function in terms of relationship between sheep and shepherds. And then the third group is you're fairly new in your faith and you never even really thought about it. Uh, maybe you've come out of Catholicism and you still think that, that we're just priests that don't dress right or something like that. Uh, we, I get that a lot. Would you come bless my business? I'm not a priest. I'll pray for you. But I don't do blessings. I don't bring olive oil with me and I don't uh, bring incense or anything like that. We just bring the word of God. So you've never really thought about it or maybe you have a, a skewed understanding. So it's vital for all of our spiritual health to have a biblical understanding of this relationship. Very important to understand this about 1 Thessalonians. There's a motivating idea which, which forms the bookends of this book. It's an idea which is the umbrella upon, under which all the doctrine, all the admonitions, all the exhortations are presented by Paul. They're all under this umbrella and that is the umbrella of the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. The first verse of the letter, grace to you and peace. The last verse of the letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Those are the bookends. That's the umbrella under which all the letter falls. Two times Paul wishes for their lives to exude the grace of God extended to them in Christ. And that they were sinners dead in their trespasses against the holy God, but God extended mercy. He extended kindness. He extended grace to them. And so really, all of the admonitions and commands given by Paul to these new believers in the young church at Thessalonica, they fall under the category of be as gracious as God has been to you. That's the category. We'll see this especially in the the next passage if we were to spend time there that tells the church how to deal with what we might call difficult people or the spiritually high-maintenance brothers and sisters. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. How do you do that? Well, with grace. And so our response to the grace of God is to be conduits of grace ourselves, to be men and women of God who create peace not clamor, who create tranquility, not difficulty. And one of the major ways that we create peace is how we relate to our spiritual shepherds, to to pastors, to elders. And so our main idea for today is the fact that the, the effective, the healthy church esteems her shepherds. The effective church esteems her shepherds. And this is the path to peace and harmony in the church. And I might add this, this is the path to you being a happy church member. It really is. And so Paul is going to give three imperatives, three commands regarding how the the sheep are to relate to the shepherds, how they're to esteem them. And this is all for the honor of Christ. It's all to keep the, the church pure. It's a response to the grace given through his work on the cross. And these admonitions are very simple. There's just three of them. Know the shepherds, love the shepherds, and help the shepherds. We can shorten it even further. Know them, love them, and help them. And so we'll just look at these very simply walking through the text. Know them, love them, and help them. First of all, let's talk about Paul's imperative to know them. 
He makes a request of the sheep of the church. He says, we ask you, brothers. Now, first of all, that's, it's not a command, but it's kind of a, a really strong suggestion. It's sort of that flavor. It's a sense of asking for a favor, that this is for your own good. It's, it's something that says, I'm asking you to do this, but I'm really telling you to do it. It's kind of a nice way of giving a command. What is he asking? We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Now, this word to respect, it's not an easy word to translate in this context. Almost always, it simply means to know. But the context seems to indicate something beyond knowing them. So it's somewhat of a mixture of knowing, respecting, and acknowledging. And there is a case to be made for the flavor of acknowledging, of respecting. Thessalonica had inexperienced leadership. They were all young in the Lord. Put it this way, they all came to faith essentially at the same time. And yet Paul chose some of them to be leaders and others not to be. And so he tells them how to relate to their imperfect shepherds. Maybe you've been in a work situation where suddenly uh, somebody is promoted above all the guys that he used to be equal with. That becomes a odd, an odd situation. That's what happened here. Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel in the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And Acts 14 says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And so for a short time, they were giving the spiritual basics to all these new churches. But what did they do before they left? Every time. Acts 14.23, when they had appointed... And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the idea is that a group of men had emerged in each local church as the leaders, men with no more time in the Lord than any of the others, and yet they exhibited qualities that made them the best men for the job. There's another example that Paul gives of how certain men emerged as natural leaders of the sheep that the sheep should follow. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 15, Paul said, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of, of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So Paul told the Corinthian church to give recognition to them and be subject to them. Why? They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And so for the church in Thessalonica, Paul is simply saying acknowledge their leadership. Respect them as you would me. It's a choice that they make. Now, important little grammatical note here. The construction of this verb to respect or to knowledge, acknowledge or to know, it says that this is an action that begins at a certain point and it carries on into the foreseeable future. It's not a, a temporary action. It's not a one-time action. I think this is very important to understand because remember, the church at Thessalonica didn't have a model to, to copy for how to do church. They didn't have a model. This is important in light of their inexperienced leadership. The last thing that the leadership needed was for the church to constantly question their authority, to say, well, you didn't do very well this week. Let's change all the leaders up. Uh, constant criticizing, pointing out flaws, discouraging them. There wasn't a precedent for what they were supposed to do. Were they supposed to have a leader of the month? How, what were they supposed to do? But what this says, they would read, we ask you, brothers, to respect, begin now, and keep on going your leaders. What does this indicate? It indicates continuity. It indicates a long-range ministry of leadership is always preferable. These now liberal denominations that have the habit of sending, of rotating all their pastors every three or four years, they're shooting themselves in the foot. By doing this, there's no continuity. There's no long-range ministry. Instead, there's to be the developing of mutual relationships and, and kinship together. Now, this doesn't mean that you treat leaders as if they're church royalty. That's not the case. We're simply the chief servants, that's all. Nor does it mean that you treat them as punching bags in which pastor bashing season is open 12 months a year. 
John Stott said it this way, the church is neither to despise them, the shepherds, as if they were dispensable, nor to flatter or fawn on them as if they were popes or princes, but rather to respect them. In seminary, we are told that the person who flatters you the most when you arrive is the one who's going to be pushing for you to leave the soonest. And so we keep a balance. In the most fundamental use of this word, to respect, though, it carries the flavor of knowing them, knowing your shepherds. Now, I have an advantage because I'm the easiest one to know. You know me through my preaching. If you've been at Grace Bible Church for any length of time, you can probably tell me what's important to me better than I can. Some of you come up and say, two years, six months, and one week ago, you preached a sermon, and point number three, ministered to my soul. That's, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but you know me. Because of what we do here in the pulpit. But you know your leaders also through a concerted effort to know them, to listen to them, to listen to what they say, to get to know them, to find them, to see what areas of ministry they're responsible for. And I want to camp on this just for a bit. What should you know about your shepherds and why should you know them? Let me talk about what you should know. What should you know about them? I'll just give you a little list. Know their strengths. They should have some because they're elders, they're, they're leaders. And this goes all the way for leaders at every level in the church. Know their strengths. Thank the Lord for what they do well and pray for them. Pray for the Lord to bless and multiply the areas they're the most gifted in. That's how God made us. But also know their frailties. Not so that you can keep a long list and invite them to coffee every other week to tell them all their frailties. Most of us know what they are. These are the areas that your leaders are less gifted in or less passionate about. That's probably how God made them. And that's most likely just beating your head against a wall to try to make somebody that he isn't. That's why we have a plurality of elders, multiple leaders who can do different things well. We know each other's strengths. We know each other's frailties. And that's why we desperately need your prayers. Let me tell you why I desperately need your prayers. My job is to open my mouth all the time. And we know that Proverbs ten nineteen says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. I talked to a pastor friend, and he just made the observation, do you regret most of the things you said that weren't in your notes? Yeah, exactly. Know their strengths, know their frailties, know that they're human. Know that they're human. Pastors and elders are routinely treated as subhuman. As if the admonitions concerning gossip or slander doesn't apply to your pastor. Or as if uh, admonitions about kindness doesn't apply to leaders in the church. As if admonitions about just basic goodness toward another human being don't apply. We understand it's simply part of the ministry that sometimes people get upset with you. We understand that. Sometimes you have to make a stand for what's right and that causes a division as it should. Sometimes we deserve it and sometimes we don't just like everybody else. Be careful not to flatter too much. That causes pride. That causes uh, pastoritis, the swelling of the head of the pastor. We don't want that. But be careful not to be overly critical to cause discouragement. And this starts where? It starts in your heart. Don't cultivate sinful thoughts. It doesn't help you. Nobody ever has gone to a time of prayer and said, Lord, I'm so thankful for all the bitterness I've developed over the past five years toward my pastor. I just am really thankful for that. It's really helped me grow. Nobody's ever said that. It hurts you. It it hampers your growth. Imagine Pastor Peter. You may not know this, but Pastor Peter had a physiological problem and that was that his mouth moved before his brain did. Imagine pastors uh, John and James, the sons of thunder who wanted fire to come down from heaven to consume people who rejected Christ's preaching. What did John become known as? The apostle of love. And yet these are the men that the Lord himself chose to spread the gospel to the entire world. I'm not a pastor because my sanctification process is complete. On the contrary, you don't see the way the Lord pounds me and convicts me. Because as I learn the word of God, I have to tell you to obey it. And I, I'm convicted by that as well. It disciplines me to beg for his help and to beg for his mercy. I got to tell you, preaching 15 messages on the pastors and the elders of the church, this has been not my funnest time. Because every week, well, what's wrong with me this week? 
Know their human. How about this one? Know their heart passion. Know their heart passion. Every man who's called to spiritual leadership has a passion or two or three. Those things that just really light his fire. Learn what it is and get behind it. God made them that way to fulfill a particular part of the kingdom work. One of my passions is quantity of preaching. I want to preach every opportunity I can. I want to multiply the preached word in every way I can. That's why we want to have books. That's why we have our Steadfast in the Faith website. The preached word should just go out as much as possible. I didn't preach my first sermon until I was 30 years old. And so I want to make up for lost time. I want quantity. That's what I'm passionate about. Other elders are passionate about this or about that. Learn those things. Know their responsibility. Know their responsibility. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Can I tell you, no matter how bad your pastors or elders are, you're not in that position. And you're not there having to deal with that. I just read this this morning, James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Every time I read that verse, I look for a footnote. When and how? He just said it's coming. The ministry of the word is a prophetic ministry. It is the heralding of the truth of God. This is weighty. It's heavy. It's not a game. It's not something to be entered into lightly. And the more you understand that, the better we'll be together. It means at times being unpopular. It means saying what you believe the Lord would have you say and begging God to use your inadequate, frail, human, mortal words to somehow by God's Spirit be the means by which God changes your life. It means crying tears that you'll never see. It means begging God for help for you in ways you'll never know. Sometimes it may mean in certain situations, as Steve Lawson says, sometimes you have to preach a church down to nothing so you can preach it up to something. When I was in seminary, we were warned repeatedly that the graduates of our particular seminary, the Master's Seminary, who had failed in the ministry, either morally or doctrinally, were almost always straight-A students. They were the smartest of the smart. And we were also told that some of the best pastors ever produced by this institution were the men who had to struggle to learn, who had to wrestle and grip the truth, who grasped the weightiness of the responsibility, those who praised God for a C- minus in, in Hebrew exegesis. Because then they could praise God for doing small things in their ministry and they became effective. How about this one? Know their families. Know their families. Before I came to Grace Bible Church, the pastor search team met in the home of Grant Oweiler and some of you here were on that team. And you asked me uh, a lot of questions and, and then you asked one question, what can we do for you? And I really appreciated that question. And I gave two answers. The first one, and it hasn't changed, the first one is love the word of God and the second one is love my family. And I will be your slave for life. When elders and deacons and other leaders sense the love of the church for their families, they'll do anything to serve you because this has become their family. So that's how to know them, what to know about them. Why know them? Why know them? And this reason might surprise you. You need to know your leaders so you can, they can speak into your life and you can receive it. The more you know them, the more personal you feel, personally you feel connected to your leaders, the more you're going to be able to hear them. Anger or irritation or unforgiveness or not liking a leader's style or personality or, or idiosyncrasies, all that does is halt your spiritual growth completely. That's all it does. Spending your Christian life upset and critical is such a waste of time. Such a waste of time. In the same way that you'll never remake your spouse into your image, you'll never remake your church leaders into your, into your image. And like in a marriage, the better route is to know them and to believe that God is using them for your good and for His glory. First imperative, know them. Paul gives a second imperative, love them. Love them. Verse 13 says, esteem them very highly in love. 
Let's take that apart. What does it mean to esteem them? This has to do with the opinion that you hold, that you choose to have. It means to consider something. It means to regard something in a certain way. And for example, Philippians 3.8, the Apostle Paul said, whatever gain I had, same word, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It means to give something a specific value. Paul counted all of his good works as zero. And what Paul is saying here is to count your shepherds as worthy of esteem and worthy of love. Esteem them what? Highly in love. Highly. It's a word that means beyond all measure, that there's no limits. It's, it's love that, that goes beyond what you can measure. And what kind of love is this? This is warm affection. This is joy. This is delight. It's a choice that you make. I, I don't know how many times or how many different ways I can say this, but over and over again, my observation has been that there is a direct correlation between how seriously a church member takes these admonitions and how absolutely ecstatic they are to be in the church. Those two always go together. Why do you esteem them highly in love? Paul says, because of their work. Because of their work, not because of their personality, not because of their looks, I'm thankful for that, not because you put them on a pedestal or venerate them as some sort of priest, not because they do everything the way you would do it, not because of status, not even because of special gifting, but because of their work, because they feed your starving and needy souls. That's why the leaders of the Thessalonian church were passionate about the work of the ministry. They're already doing it. That's part of the reason Paul called on the church to recognize them. We recognize leaders because they're already passionate about the church. They already love you. They're passionate about doing anything that they can. By the way, in the early stages of the church of Jesus Christ, the most visible leaders were the first ones to take persecution. And that has gone on all throughout history and that's happening today. There's very much a sense in which this is simultaneously, as shepherding simultaneously, the most important work on earth, but the lowliest service as well. We talked about this some last time, but you know, saying to someone, I'm a pastor, is usually met with looks of sympathy. Like, wow, I'm really sorry about what happened to your life. We're lumped in with what the world sees as clowns, buffoons, and scam artists. And one study showed that in a list of respected professions, pastor just barely beat out used car salesmen. That's how the world sees us. And just once, I feel like Christ would be about to return if this happened, but just once, I'd like to see a Hollywood movie in which a pastor isn't presented as a disinterested, untalented, boring, dusty, crusty, second-rate loser who couldn't think of anything else to do with life, so I think I'll be a pastor. I've lost track of the number of times I've heard people of speaking of those who have a real job, as opposed to being a pastor. Somebody asked me once, have you ever had a real world job? Well, you know, I, I think trying to keep people out, out of hell is fairly real. But it's okay. Jesus said in Mark ten forty four that you must be the slave of all if you're going to be first. So that's what we are. Your love is because of their work. I got an email some time ago from someone in another state who mistakenly thought he would find a sympathetic ear with me. He was complaining about all the inadequacies of his pastor. And there wasn't another church in the nearby vicinity, kind of in a rural area. Pastor was doing his best to preach the word, but I got a long litany of all the things that was wrong with him. And so understandably, Sundays had become unbearable for this whole family because dad is openly complaining to wife and kids about their pastor. So I answered his email and I asked him to consider this text, the First Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. And I asked him to consider making a long-term strategy to provide love, care, support, and prayer for their pastor to make that their ministry. I got an email back a while later that brought me to tears because his attitude was totally different. He said, our family looks forward to going to church and get this. He said, and funny enough, the pastor's preaching is really improving. No, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. His attitude has changed and he's hearing the word of God again. Some of the greatest men of God I know couldn't preach their way out of a paper sack, but they open the word and they explain it 
and people grow because the Word of God is living and active and powerful. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian churches. He was giving a strict warning about the fact that you are departing from the gospel that I preached to you. You're going a different direction. You're going to a, a, a different gospel as if there was one. And he calls them out on this. And he draws a line in the sand. And you know how he knew that they were departing? One of the ways he knew is that they had grown cold toward him. And then he gets really personal. And he says in Galatians 4.13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. In other words, Paul had some condition that, that halted his travels and he ended up in the province of Galatia. He couldn't travel. He was sick. And so he began preaching the gospel and that's how the church was born. He goes on, and though my condition was a trial to you, in other words, these brand new believers were, were taking care of him. They were ministering to him. They were helping him. Although my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And then he says, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul had some terrible, disgusting condition that required them to take care of him and they treated him like he was an angel from God, like he was Jesus himself. But now he says, what happened? Why am I now your enemy? What did I do? The church that doesn't value and love her shepherds is only shooting itself in the foot. Part of this love is very practical to help both the shepherds and the sheep. And I'm just going to mention this briefly because we covered it in another message. But 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, work in preaching and teaching. Honor, as we said, is a word that is translated elsewhere in the New Testament to simply mean money. And, and the context confirms that this is the next, in the next verse, that this is the, the laborer deserving his wages. Not just honor, but double honor, twofold honor, more than enough. There's a sense of generosity and overflowing abundance that the man of God might focus his attention on the ministry. I'm thankful that I can speak about this openly because Grace Bible Church already gets this. You understand that, that like anything else, you get what you pay for. A few years ago, I wrote an article called How to Get a Pastor to Move Across the Country to Your Church. It's a, it's a checklist for smaller churches to, to follow. And I've used this with some men who, who are connecting up with small churches, considering them and, and him considering them. And basically the checklist is things like unity of doctrine in leadership, uh, creating a unity of doctrine as a church uh, by formalizing unity of doctrine in a statement, a formal membership process to gauge the level of commitment, fostering an attitude of wanting to develop leaders, um, some other checklists I gave to them in this article. But the last one is financial support. There's four basic categories that a local church can fall in when it comes to financial support of their shepherds. Here's the four categories. Able and willing. There's a deep desire and an ability to be generous. There's unable and willing. This is the church that has the right attitude, but they're just too small to pay what they would like to pay. There's able and unwilling. That's an attitude of stinginess and not valuing shepherds. I knew a pastor whose family was on, on state assistance when the church had $5 million in the bank. And then there's unable and unwilling. This is a church with spiritual cancer that needs to close. And so I advise in the article to look for categories one and two, able and willing or unable and willing. But three and four will just end up with everybody getting hurt. Now, to be very, very clear, this love relationship between shepherds and sheep, this is most definitely a reciprocal relationship. The shepherd who has stopped loving the sheep has lost his way. I've heard some wonderful sermons and good admonitions about the idea of a shepherd being careful to not let his heart grow small. He's become self-serving instead of serving others. The shepherd is responsible to maintain a broken heart for the sheep. 
And how do we do that? Well, we pray for you. We, we love you. One of my favorite things is, I, I, you know this about me, I love your kids. I love your kids. And one of them might be the next million-dollar donor to Grace Bible Church. Who knows? <laughs> but it's our responsibility to maintain a broken heart for you, to maintain a love for you, that you are sheep that need shepherds, to have that compassion that Christ has. But there is a big challenge in the loving relationship between sheep and shepherds, shepherds and sheep. We have a massive propensity to sin and to step on each other. Can you imagine how inept the leadership of Thessalonica must have been at times? Think about this. They had almost no knowledge of Scripture. These are the leaders. Almost no knowledge of Scripture. Very little experience leading the church. They had no formal training except maybe 12 weeks with Paul and Silas and a couple of letters. They had no formalized evangelism program, no preaching training whatsoever. They had just a few New Testament letters. They might have had a copy of James, maybe Galatians. It's a long shot that they might have had Matthew. None of the others have been written yet. They did have their Old Testament, but almost all of them, according to chapter 1, verse 9, were Gentiles. They had no familiar with the Old Testament. And yet, who appointed them? Who appointed them? Paul tells us, when he addressed the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so just like in every other human relationship, the love between sheep and shepherds really boils down to a choice. That's all it is. Do I decide to do so or do I stay aloof and judgmental to my own hurt and detriment? At every one of our Grace Connect classes, I, I get to do the last little bit and I try to remember to apologize in advance for all the ways we will disappoint you and to ask for forgiveness in advance that the leaders will disappoint you. But then we also say we forgive you for all the ways you'll disappoint the leaders as well. Paul's three imperatives for the sheep in esteeming their shepherds, know them, love them, one more, help them. Help them. Verse 13 says, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace with one another. The believers now have a supernatural ability to live peacefully among themselves. You have the ability by the Holy Spirit to live according to Ephesians 4, to be peaceful. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Romans 12 says you have this ability. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus used the metaphor of salt to describe the goodness and flavor that should flow out of the life of the believer Mark 9, verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What does it mean to have salt within yourselves? Jesus has said, be at peace with one another. How does this help the shepherds for the sheep to live in peace with one another? Well, we get a clue as I read in the next two verses. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Who is Paul addressing? Verse 14, we urge you brothers. This is everyone's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. A pastor and elder isn't your heavenly hitman to go hunt your enemies down for you. Hey, that guy who sits on the other side of the sanctuary, I don't like him. Get after him. Nope, Matthew 18, you go talk to him. You go deal with it. You learn to go to your brother or sister. We understand that one-on-one shepherding is a vital part of the ministry. But frankly, believers who refuse to live in peace with one another, live in peace with one another drain time and energy away from shepherds. And we don't want that. We're happy to help if we must. But I guarantee you, if you drag me into a room with two of you, my first question is going to be, what have you done so far? If I'm your first step, I'm going to get up and leave because you need to do this with one another. So 
like the father that was in his house. He heard a commotion out in the yard. It was his daughter with all of her friends and they're getting louder and more heated and they're arguing and they're fussing with one another. And finally, the dad goes outside and he yells, stop it, honey, what's wrong? The little girl said, well, daddy, we're just playing church. (laughs) What's the best way to help? What's the best way to help? Our classic verse is Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What does it mean to submit? Yield, obey. This isn't a dictatorial relationship. Don't text me and say, you know, should I get the generic brand or the, or the name brand? I don't know. That's not a spiritual decision necessarily. It's not a dictatorial relationship. But it's a loving relationship, like a parent-child, like a marriage relationship. Very much the same. Mutual love, mutual respect, mutual delight. But what I want to point out from Hebrews thirteen seventeen is that your shepherds will give an account to God, not you. All you will account for is how you responded to the shepherds. That's it. So in other words, God would have the conversation that goes something like this. How did you respond to your shepherds? Here's the way you didn't do it so well. Here's the ways you did do so well. But Lord, don't you know that he wasn't? No, I will worry about that. Then he turns to the shepherd. Let me tell you why this person had a problem. You see that separation, that division? They keep watch over your souls. If there was ever a verse I could take out of the Bible, that might be the one. Our job is to teach and preach and instruct in those areas that will keep you from spiritual harm even when it hurts your feelings and even when you maybe not fully are understanding the admonitions yet, but you will. On the other side, how happy, how happy is the church in which the leaders and the followers, the shepherds and the sheep recognize this symbiotic, loving relationship that they have all designed by the great shepherd himself. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we have this saying around here that we like to say that all we're doing is walking each other home. That's what we're doing. We always pray that every Sunday is our last one here on this earth. You know, I want to be seated where you are looking at preacher Jesus teaching us. Maybe, maybe this Sunday will be the last, but until it is, we have a responsibility. Know them, love them, help them. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. I'm personally so thankful for the men who have spoken to my life. They've spoken into my life uh, both as my pastor, as a, as a younger man, and seminary professors, other men who have had a direct influence in my life. One of our greatest joys on this earth is to simply walk our walks with Christ together, isn't it? That we gather around the warm fires of the word of God And I got to tell you, what level of joy you experience in the church of Jesus Christ is in large part determined by how much harmony you decide to bring to the table. That's it. With the frail and the flawed under shepherds that God has given you. And we have such a wonderful example. Jesus Christ was gripped with and he was passionate about being subject to his father, being submissive to his father. He was so gripped with that that he equated obedience to be in like nourishment for him. He said in John four thirty four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my food. And though he was fully God and completely equal with the Father on earth, we're given Christ as the ultimate example of humble submission in Philippians 2, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And through his death on the cross, he paid the bill for our sin, the bill owed to God our very lives. And in return for saving our souls and bringing us into the kingdom, God has asked for your lives that you become living sacrifices, fully submitted to him, receiving with joy whatever place in his program you've received, whatever place that is. Some 
like one of my heroes of the faith, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, some are assigned to have the mind of a genius and as a teenager to have the ability to hold great crowds in rapt attention in the preached word of God. And when he died, over 100,000 people lined the streets for his funeral. Others, like a woman named Agnes, was a simple faithful church member and went down in history as her pastor's favorite church member ever. Agnes was the widow of a pastor and with this knowledge she took her pastor and his wife under her wing. She treated them like her children. She treated their children like her own grandchildren. For a decade she encouraged her pastor with words and cards regardless of his skill or lack thereof in the pulpit. She prayed fervently And at her funeral, her pastor stated that in 28 years of ministry, no church member had ever prayed for him like Agnes did. She didn't have 100,000 people at her funeral, but she had one very, very grateful man. She worked at making sure her words were always filled with grace, and instead of becoming more and more of a complainer with age, she never stopped serving in the church and seasoning every conversation with words of love and affection for her pastor She served in the church until she was 99 years old. And she left behind a legacy of how a Christ-honoring church esteems her shepherds. All to the glory for the cause of Christ, the great shepherd and the head of the church. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I don't know about you, but that's how I want our church to be. That beautiful symbiotic teamwork where the sheep love the shepherds and the shepherds feed the sheep. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a warm, delightful set of verses given to us through the Apostle Paul. How encouraging, how kind. They really put a hand on our back and encourage us forward. Lord, we're just a little, tiny, local body that meets in a warehouse district behind a Walmart. From the world's standpoint, we are nothing. From the world's standpoint, we are insignificant. But in a world that's going insane, in a world that is going crazy, the church of Jesus Christ is the only safe place left. Lord, might we not be part of ruining that one last safe place by our actions, our selfishness. Might we walk in a manner worthy? Might we practice sound ecclesiology as the sheep love their shepherds and as the shepherds work hard labor at feeding the sheep that we might all walk in a manner that is consistent with the gospel and that is pleasing to Christ. Lord, we pray for those among us who may not know Christ. Might this be the day that they would come to our Savior. And we pray for those yet to be among us, Lord, even those watching online. Or that perhaps the gospel has not yet taken hold in their hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would expand your kingdom through this little tiny body. Might we be faithful. Lord, how wonderful would it be that when Christ returns, he could say that Grace Bible Church was faithful to the end. That's what we're asking, Lord. And every one of us would desire to be a part of that faithfulness. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.